This is Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. I am so pleased to bring you a conversation I had recently with Heather Saucedo. She found herself in a situation that very few of us can imagine. She had met the love of her life. She was just 22. She was pregnant with their baby, and her fiancé, Oscar, found out he had stomach cancer. Hi, my name is Heather Saucedo, and I'm very happy to be here today. But here's the thing you're going to get to know about Heather. She doesn't want you to feel sorry for her or pity her. She wants you to see her strength and her resilience and her hopeful spirit. What I don't like is for people to hear my story and they give me like these pity eyes. Like I can see the pity in their eyes. And I find a lot of the time it's mixed. I feel like it's the older generation that hears my story and they're just, I mean, sometimes people cry. When Heather and I first sat down, I asked her to reminisce a little bit about the first time we met. I do this in every interview because I think grief has a way of both tearing people from our lives, but also bringing people into our life. And the reason Heather and I met is pretty profound for both her grief journey and my own. Do you remember the first time we met? I do. Um... Oscar, my husband, he got diagnosed with uh, gastric cancer in 2014, September of 2014. We had already started chemotherapy, um, and I mean, he stopped working, obviously. He was sick, and I was working and pregnant with our daughter, and we we just knew we needed, like, backup as far as, like, supplies and you know, everything, like the little stuff, like beanies, like clothing. And then our, I don't remember what she was. Trissa? Tris, yes, Trissa. Trissa put us in contact with color cancer. Yeah. And yeah. we had no idea what it was at first. Um, she kind of gave us like a little bit of a background story. And we knew we were the first patients. Um, and I was like, well, I mean, we we don't have anything, Oscar. Like, we, we need help. We, yeah. That's for sure what we need. And so we got started with um, a wish list. I don't think I ever told you this, but let me tell you what he wanted to put on the wish list. <laughs> he was trying to put, like, a 65-inch television on there. <laughs> like, well, at, uh, for our listeners who don't know, CareBox program now provides essential care supplies to cancer patients. And when we first started the program, we just had kind of... I mean, I think we listed like 70 items, but we also asked, what else do you need? Because we were trying to discover what it was patients need. I just love that Oscar wanted a 65-inch TV on there. Well, he, he did get one, you know, a little, a little bit later on, but it wasn't through, you know. It wasn't through CareBox program, no. no. it wasn't through the program. Um, that wasn't, wasn't what we needed at the time. It was, what, it was a want. But as far as the things that he needed, um, we needed to supplement nutrition, so we got insures, um, I mean, clothing, beanies, long sleeve. I think we were in, like, fall, approaching winter time. So we got stuff like that. Um, and I remember I was huge. I was, I looked like a That's whale. That's called beautiful pregnancy, <laughs> not huge, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> and I just remember you, I remember you guys knocking on the door. I think I was asleep. Mm-hmm. I was very frazzled. Pretty sure my hair was everywhere. Opened the door and you guys like unloaded and there was boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff. And after you guys left, we just kind of like looked at each other and I'm like, well, I mean, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Like we've, we've been doing this for a little bit, but now we have some, you know, things that we need. Yeah. And that was the first time that we had met. That's right. That's right. Well, maybe something you don't know is before I showed up at your door, I cried. And after I left your door, I cried. Um, Because when Jillian and I started, it was color cancer at the time, what became CareBox program. Um, We did that out of our own experiences of loss. 
um, cancer specifically. And so um, when we knocked on the hospital doors to try to explain this crazy idea we had that donors wanted to help cancer patients they didn't even know and we were going to deliver the essential care supplies they need, send us a patient. I just vividly remember Trissa, who is a social worker, um, we'll give a shout out to Texas Oncology, who immediately understood how important this was and was and immediately thought of Oscar. I remember sitting across from her in her office and she said, I know exactly who we're going to ask. We're going to ask Oscar and Heather. Maybe also what you don't know is literally August, middle of August is when we were sitting down with a piece of paper and a pencil in a windowless closet of an office developing the application and the idea and the concept. And we were completing your wish list in October. I mean, it was just a few months and you guys were the first people we served. And I um, felt so incredibly honored. So I know we're going to talk more about you and about Oscar as we go forward. And um, I cherish that memory. And that was, wow, almost five years ago. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Aubrey's, Aubrey's four. Right. I always remember right. everything. Exactly. How old she is. So, yeah. Exactly. I asked Heather, as I do all my guests, what was her earliest memory of grief? What did people say or do? How did they behave? I ask this each time because I think this is how we start to learn about how we're going to handle our own grief. My earliest memory of grief um, is probably five, six. I wasn't very old. I just remember my mom explaining to me that we had lost um, my great aunt, Barbara. And my mom wasn't crying. Like, my mom just explained it to me, like, hey, you know. Matter of factly. Yeah, like, we, we lost Barbara to breast cancer. And I just remember falling apart. And I think I only met this woman, like, once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, she was my family member, but we didn't have, like, a solid relationship. You know, it was one of those relationships, like, oh, it's Christmas time. Right. We get <laughs> to go see the rest of the family. Like, you know, that yeah. kind. But I fell apart. I was crying my eyes out, and I just remember my mom explaining to me, like, death is part of our life. Like, my mom was so, my mom was single. She was a single parent. Yeah. And my mom, the way she was with me is everything was, what you see is what you get. And, yeah. hey, this is how it is, Heather. Yeah, no sugarcoating. So, yeah, she didn't sugarcoat anything. She was just like, you know, Barbara died from breast cancer, and she's no longer here. You know, she, she's in a better place now and, you know, that. Yeah. But I fell apart. Yeah. And my mom didn't, which is so strange for me to fall apart. Really? Yeah. Was that unusual for you at that? Like, were uh, you not the kind of kid who would I don't think get so. emotional? I don't think. I mean, I think I was, you know, like emotional as a, as a kid, but I don't, I don't understand why I was so upset because I didn't have a relationship with her. Now, if it would have been like, my grandma, my grandpa, then yes. But my yeah. Aunt Barbara, like, I only met her a couple times. After Heather shared how her mom modeled grief for her when she was younger, I asked her to tell me if she noticed a similar dynamic between her and her mom when Oscar was diagnosed. I think that the roles were flipped a little bit. I think that, well, I feel like Everybody took it hard. His family, me, my mom. But I feel like my mom had a really hard time with it. I feel like... Like you saw more emotion this yes, time. Yes, I saw a lot more emotion from my mom this time. But a little side story. Yeah, please. My mom was not a fan of Oscar whenever we first met. Um, we we were 12 years apart. We had a huge age, age gap between the two of us, so... You know, I think I was like 19 or 20 at the time when we met. And my mom was not a fan of him. But over the years, she got to see who he was as a person and realized, you know, this man is out here, you know, for the greater good of Heather. Like, he's yeah. going to take care of her. He's going to respect her. He's going to treat her right. And my mom fell in love with him, too. My mom, she refers to him still to this day as her son-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, she, she loved Oscar. She still does. She, I mean, to see the relationship between the two of them, to the two of them, um, was kind of funny. 
you know? They yeah. laughed and joked with each other, and him and my mom were pretty close. Especially considering where it started. Yes, exactly, <laughs> considering where it started, because, I mean, it was kind of like both ends of the spectrum. Like, yeah. You know, first time she met him, she wouldn't speak to him. She was really cold towards him, but my mom can be like that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, as months turned into years, you know, she loved Oscar. She'd yeah. call him more than she called me. I'm like, hey, I'm your kid. I'm nodding I, my head vigorously right now because I feel like that's how my family was about my late husband, Eric. Like, they thought he hung the moon, and he did hang the moon. But, I mean, they loved him from the instant. But also, I do think, like, they would call him more than me. They would reference his enthusiasm about things more than me. Sometimes I was like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. I'm your kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I got yeah. like that a little bit. And So what do you think? Did her level of grief, either sort of the anticipatory grief while Oscar was sick, heading towards dying, or even after he died, make it hard for you to find space for your own grief around her? Does that make sense, that question? Yes, it does make sense. I feel like I've encountered this with quite a few people where I feel like their grief is a little more severe than mine, if that makes any sense. Sort of maybe, I, I sometimes think of the analogy, it's like, their grief sometimes sucks up the oxygen in the room. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so then how do you, what is the experience for you? How are you feeling in those moments when you're in the presence of someone who's sort of, their grief is outperforming yours to be sort of crass, but. To be completely honest, it is awkward. Yeah. It is super awkward and it, it, oh, I hate to say this, but mm-hmm. it kind of annoys me sometimes because I'm like, really? Get it together. Like if I'm together, you need to get your shit together. <laughs> Please do not apologize. I am so absolutely right there with you, and I think a lot of our listeners are too. Um, grief brings out anger a lot and annoyance, by the way. I don't think we talk about that either because no, we, uh, we, no. we talk about the sad and the crying, so maybe mm-hmm. we can touch a little bit about the sheer anger, and sometimes it feels completely disproportional to the behavior, but it's pretty yes. rageful. So it sounded like sometimes you felt a real frustration, like, wait, why are you stealing the spotlight or why are you sucking up the oxygen in the room? Sometimes. Yes, sometimes. I feel like with my mom, not so much. It was more of his family members sometimes. And I mean, I get it 100%. You know, Oscar wasn't just my husband. He was someone's son. He was someone's brother. He was someone's best friend, a cousin, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, there were times where I would see these people and they're like crying on my shoulder. And you're like, wait, no, this is supposed to be reversed. I'm supposed to be crying yes. on your shoulder. Yeah. Like one side story after he had passed and hospice came and picked him up and, you know, did their thing. His sister came over and she's like, well, where's Oscar? And this is before I was ready to start telling people because things got really nasty between me and his family. And I felt like I needed to get my daughter out of our apartment before I delivered any news to anyone. Mm. Well, his sister stops by and she's like, where's Mihal? I'm like, well, he passed. And she immediately bursts into tears and I'm looking at her and I'm like, it's okay. And I'm patting her back and I'm thinking to myself, this is ass backwards. You're supposed to be comforting me. Why am I hugging you? Why am I telling you it's okay? And I just remember like, patting her on the back and I'm like even kind of like because my mom was there with me at my apartment yeah um so he he had passed away in our apartment okay and so like I just remember like hugging her and like you know telling her it's okay and I'm like looking at my mom and I'm like what the fuck like seriously why are you crying on my shoulder all of his sisters were like in their 50s and 60s his youngest sister was in her, the same age as my mom. So she was in her mid-40s. Okay. So this sister that had come over to the uh, to our apartment, she was like maybe, let's just say 50 or so. She was significantly older than me. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I was 23, 23 years old. And you and just lost your husband. Yes, I just lost my husband. My daughter was, you know, severely medically fragile you know, she's in and out of surgeries. She had just had heart surgery back in August. That's right. And then he passed in November. And I mean, I'm just like an emotional roller coaster, an emotional wreck. And here's this woman boo hooing on me. And I hate to sound like a bitch, but I'm like, 
if I have it together and I've gone through all of this with my daughter being medically fragile, stop. I so appreciate the way Heather was vulnerable and authentic and really frank about the frustration she felt about other family members demonstrating their grief. I think it's something that we can all relate to if we've been there. It isn't that everybody doesn't have the right to grieve and that they might do it in their own way in their own time. That's for certain. We just need to remember how are we showing up for other people in their grief and who is really at the center of the grief. And if after you've shown up for somebody else and held space for them and bared witness to their pain, who are you then going to lean on? Because you don't need to be leaning on the person at the center of the grief. Yes, agreed 100%. Yeah. And be careful what comes out of your mouth. Absolutely. Be careful, you know, watch your wording. Yeah. Well, that segues beautifully into a whole theme of conversations I've been having with folks lately, which is words. My goodness, we just want to show up and say all the things, even though, you know, when someone's experiencing grief um, along their grief journey, which by the way, newsflash, everybody doesn't end after two weeks or whatever FMLA gives us. (laughs) Um, It's with us until we take our last breath. But I wonder whether you might talk about what have you found helpful people have said to you or not over these past, so it's been four years, it'll be four years in November? Yes, okay. so it'll be four years four in years November. Four years in November. What have you found helpful that people have said or not said, by the way? Because I think there's so much beauty in the not saying, but boy, do we like to say stuff. Yes, Um, I feel like I'm very um, picky with who I share my life experiences with. Um, And I feel like I'm talking mainly about coworkers. I mean, I've been working where I'm working now for about a year, and there's only a handful of people that know. Now, if they've talked amongst each other, I don't know. Right. But one of the things that... Well, first, I'm careful who I share my story with because... You know, this goes into what I want from people, what I want them to say, what I don't want them to say. And one of the things that I find encouraging is when someone can take my story in and like really just look at me as a person and think, wow, like you've been through a lot, but here you are today. Because I definitely pride myself in where I'm at today. I have been through... I mean, hell and back, and I'm still standing on my two feet. So for someone to acknowledge that and say, wow, you've been through a lot, but I mean, keep going, keep, you know, keep kicking ass and taking numbers. Yeah. That's what I like. I like that positivity when people can acknowledge my strength and say, wow, she's, she's a beast. Acknowledge the pain you went through and also acknowledge the strength that that has propelled in you. Now, so what's the flip side of that kind of reaction so in words? So the flip side, what I don't like is for people to hear my story and they give me like these pity eyes. Like I can see the pity in their eyes. And I find a lot of the time it's mixed. I feel like it's the older generation that hears my story and they're just, I mean, sometimes people cry yeah. and it makes me feel weird. I feel like, you know, going through grief and going through everything with Oscar, like my emotions are, I feel like they're wore out. So when I'm supposed to be crying sometimes, I'm not. And so when people cry around me, I'm just like, I don't know what to do. Especially if they didn't even know Oscar. They're crying out of bearing witness to your pain in that story. Yes. So I feel like that is something I don't like. And then hearing the words, oh, I'm sorry. I'm We're like, so what sorry you, for your loss. Yes, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to say to that? Thank you. Like, yeah. Or it's okay, by the way, because we're programmed to just say it's okay. Yes. <laughs> so when people look at me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm like, for what? Yeah. Like, I, I believe in God. I do. You know, yeah. I know that there's people with different beliefs, but I believe there's a higher power. Yeah. And we all go through something for a reason. And I feel like God put me in this position to learn from it, to grow from it, and to apply it to my life now. 
And that's what I'm doing. So when people look at me and they're like, oh, my God. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. Like, I'm fine. Yeah. Do I have my moments? Of course. Everybody does. It goes through grief. Yeah. Everybody has their moments. Um, But the I'm sorry doesn't help uh, you in your grief or help them in their grief. It drives me insanely so when people are like, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, well, fuck me too. Yeah. It sucks. I am too. It sucks. Yeah. It sucks big time. But you know what? what? It happened. I will always carry Oscar in my heart forever. I mean, my daughter is a spinning image of Oscar. So she's my little piece of Oscar. Yeah. yeah. But I also have to sit back and think, I have a child to raise as well. I lost my husband. It's sad. It's upsetting. But I also have a child to raise. Yeah. And I feel like if he were sitting right next to me, he would want me to have this instilled in me and say, yes, Heather, you lost me, but figure it out. What are you going to do now? Yeah. Are you going to crawl up in a ball and hang out over here in the corner for the rest of your life? Right. Are you going to get your shit together and raise our kid? Yeah. And make sure she's, you know, just as tough as you are, if not tougher. Yeah. So I heard you say it's it's when people can sort of bear witness to your story in a way that sees what's important to you, which is your resilience and your strength, and not bear witness in a way that has pity and sorry and sorrow. Because in a way, part of why I find that pity and the sorry, so actually anger-producing, like you said, I want to be like, fuck you, um, is because I think the reason it bothers me so much is it sort of puts the burden back on me. Like when they say, I'm sorry, et cetera, then the burden is on you to sort of say like, well, wait, don't be sorry or should they be sorry or am I feeling wrong about feeling strong or, you know, this sort of puts the burden of responsibility back on you when really when you're bearing witness to someone's story, your job as the person bearing witness is to hold the story. Yeah. Right? And not put it back on the griever. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain phrase or a way in which they held the conversation that you were like, yeah, I wish more people did that. Yes. I, yeah. I feel like when someone can take all of my story in and just look, look at me and they're just like, even like a simple, like head nod, like what we're doing right now. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. that. Like, like I see you, I hear yes, you. Yes. I acknowledge you. And there's nothing I can say by the way, that's going to fix it. Yeah. Even though we live in a fix it culture. So I'm not going to say anything, but I'm going to acknowledge you. Yes. And yeah. that, to me, that is the best way for someone to take my story in is to just listen to me. You don't have to say anything because I'm yeah. going to talk for at least 10 minutes about what I've gone through. Yeah, exactly. Like, trust me, you're not going to have any words you don't after need to, this conversation. You don't need to fill in the quiet moments. Exactly. Yeah. And I found that those people that I can talk to and tell them about my story and they, they're just quiet about it, yeah. those are the ones where I'm like, Okay. Yeah. It, it, it kind of makes me feel good, too. It, it makes me feel like I got it off my chest a little bit. And, yeah, it, it makes you feel like you got it off your chest, and it also makes you feel like if, even for that moment, I think a couple of things, someone else was able to hold it. Because sometimes I think our own pain feels so toxic. Like, if we share it with people, people are going to... Yes. I'm like having an acid visual here. Like, people are going to melt or scream or screech or walk away. And when someone can just nod and hold it... It's almost affirming, like, it's okay that I'm having this story and sharing this experience because they were able to hold it without running, screaming. Yes. Right? I think there's something. And also there's a kind of connection that happens when someone can hold your story, a connection with that person that makes you feel, makes me feel less isolated, a, a bigger sense of belonging. Is that something you found when you found that right person to be able to hear your story? Yes. Um, yeah, like it, I feel like I can like bring them into my circle. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm like, oh, okay, you're cool about the whole thing. Yeah. So come to my circle. Right. You because know? it's such a big part of who you are. So if you're with around somebody who can't do that, then there's sort of an artificial wall that happens between yeah. you and that person. Cause there's a whole part of your story, which by the way, we can talk maybe also about like being a widow isn't your only story, but it's a big part of our story. And if you can't have space for that between you and another person, then it's like you can't really show up and be yourself all the time. Yes, exactly. Dreaded question that someone asks you after they find out, especially early in your grief. 
I wish you all, I wish we were videotaping this, y'all, because Heather just made a face that I so recognize. Do you want to tell me a little bit about, and tell our listeners a little bit about that question and why you want, and what your thoughts are about what people should do with that question? So the question that we're talking about is, how are you? Let me just start here. That is a loaded question. I feel like right after I lost Oscar and people would ask me that, at first, you know, the first couple times I heard it, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm doing okay, but I'm in shock. Of course right. I'm doing okay. It hasn't hit me yet. Yeah, I don't that's know. That's the beauty of shock. Yeah, like I don't know what's happening. My life just spiraled out of control. So, yeah, I'm all right until it hits me. Yeah. And then, you know, I'd say probably about a month after Oscar passed and people would ask me that, I'd hear, how are you, how are you doing? And see the pity eyes. And I'm just looking at that person. And my answer out loud was, I'm doing okay. But inside, I'm like screaming at the top of my lungs. How the fuck do you think I'm doing? I just lost my husband. My kid just had open heart surgery back in August. She's finally semi-stable. And I'm probably running on four to five hours of sleep because now I have insomnia. Every time I close my eyes, like, I, I... I'm reliving what I saw the day that Oscar passed. Like yep. I had so many horrible nightmares yeah. and I couldn't sleep. And I'm, I'm still that way. Like I'm, I still have insomnia. It comes and goes, but you know, these people are asking me that and I'm thinking that is the stupidest question that you can ask someone that just lost somebody. It's the worst people. Please. If you get nothing else from this conversation, stop asking that question of someone who's gone through grief. Yes. Again, it goes back to if you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Show up. If it's the kind of person you have an embrace relationship with, hug them. Although ask them permission if you don't have that. Yes. Just look them in the eyes. Nod your head. Just show up. Yes. And be practical and not ask how are you doing. Because, again, it goes back to that's the burden on you to perform. Yes. Two thoughts I want to explore with you in relation to that, Heather. One is the kind of anger that comes up viscerally for those of us who've just lost somebody and how you dealt with your own anger. Were you judging yourself for feeling angry? Did other people judge you if you expressed your anger externally? So there's sort of that anger piece, and we can start there maybe. Um, at first, I, I mean, there's a grief cycle, but eventually you'll hit on anger. Yeah. It, I mean, it's just going to happen. Yeah. Um, and it comes and goes. There's plenty of times where I get really angry. You know, there's times where, you know, I've tried to put myself back out on the market and it falls through because what I was doing and what I've learned that I was doing is I was seeking Oscar and other people. Like I'm dating someone, but I'm wondering why they're not saying what Oscar would say, doing what Oscar would do. So that, that for me was very irritating. Yeah. It sparked yeah. a lot of anger and it was not so much anger for Oscar. It was anger for God. Yeah. I mean, I, I do believe in God again, and I would have very vocal conversations with him and I'm sitting here like, why would you do this to me? Yeah. Why would you, you know, take my partner and leave me with a child that has special needs, leave me with my life to face by myself whenever Oscar was that person. Yeah. Like, I feel like we could, I could have been like, Oscar, you want to ride a, like rob a bank today? And he would have been like, you know, it's not a good idea, but okay. Like yeah. he was just my partner in crime. Yeah. Literally, and, maybe metaphorically in yeah, that scenario. Yeah. <laughs> we never robbed a bank, but you know, he, that's yeah. just who he was yeah. for me. Yeah. So there, there's plenty of times like that. I, I still have those moments where I'm going through something and it, it, it's frustrating or it's hard. And I know that I could count on Oscar at the end of the day to be like, hey, did you have a good day today? You know, and I could unload yeah. on him. Yeah. So, yes, I do get very angry. And it's just as much anger in the beginning as it is now, yeah. especially around, for whatever reason, my daughter's birthday. Mm. Every birthday that comes up, I get very angry because I'm like, you should be here. Yeah. Like I shouldn't be planning a Chuck E. Cheese party by myself. I shouldn't be in here baking a cake or by myself. Like 
you should be here. Yeah. And I know that if it was his choice, of course he would be here. But but that's the thing about anger. There doesn't have a rationality to it either. You it know, doesn't. and I think that's the kind of gift we can give ourselves or if we are seeing a loved one who's having anger in relation to grief. Don't try to make it rational. Don't try to make it okay. Don't try to explain it away. Like, let the feeling come. Notice it. Be curious about it. and Because it'll go. But if we judge it or try to hold on to it or try to ignore it, it just kind of festers, right? Yes. And there's no rationality to it. It's okay. You're like, yeah, as you just said, if Oscar had his choice, he would still be here. But that doesn't make your anger towards him being gone any less valid. That's just how you're experiencing this moment in time. I think anger is one of the surprising emotions for me and for for many people. That's why I asked that question. And anger has also always been my, you know, we all have our trigger emotions that we don't do well. Mm -hmm. And anger has always been an emotion that I didn't handle well when other people were angry. And so I think for me, I found a lot of surprise when I was feeling angry when someone said the how are you doing question or when someone said he's in a better place now, which it took everything I had not to physically strangle that person. I didn't. Don't worry about it. No assaults <laughs> happened in the course of my grief. Um, and then I would feel a kind of shock at the rage sometimes that would come up in my body, especially when I could rationally think, oh, they meant well. Yes. Because I'm always trying to make excuses for other mm-hmm. people. And they meant well, but it didn't dissipate my anger. And I think I've learned over, um, it's just been eight years this month since my husband died in my arms. And I think I've learned over the years to just have more grace and patience with anger when it comes up. Yeah. Have you found that to be, have you, how are you navigating that piece? Honestly, I feel like I'm still working on it. Yeah. Because I feel like it's, um, like you said, grief is a sneaky bitch, but I feel like anger can be a sneaky yeah. bitch too. Well, because anger is one of the many emotions on the sort yes. of emotional spectrum that, that grief encompasses. Yeah. But yeah. that one, I feel like it still it sneaks up on me. Yeah. It sneaks up on me a lot. Yeah. And I feel like I that's one emotion that I haven't learned to just kind of like take in and let it like run its course. Yeah. As far as like being sad and things like that, I've learned you know, what, what's going to make those emotions less likely to pop up. Right. And that goes into like triggers and stuff. What are my triggers? Yeah. But I feel like as far as anger triggers, like, you know, the dumb questions that people ask, which you know that they mean well, those can trigger anger. But anger, it, for me, it's like the flip of a switch. Yeah. And it's zero to a hundred in a second. And it's very, um, just kind of like pops up it's like there's I can't pinpoint that one as far as like feelings like being sad or like even a little depressed like I can pinpoint those yeah it's like starting like for me it's like starting in September and it goes till about like February the end of February and then I have like a break in March I don't know about you, but I could really relate to the ways in which anger would show up out of nowhere for me especially in my early days of grief, it always surprised me. I think before you've had a significant loss, well, for myself, I'll say, I would have been surprised that anger is something that comes up. And I think I didn't understand all the different ways things can trigger you in your grief and loss. I really appreciate that Heather was willing to share some of hers. Can you tell me about some of the triggers that surprised you and how have you learned to anticipate or not or manage them or not tell me a little bit about what you've discovered along the way about the triggers that surprised you so my triggers that I mean I have a list of them but the surprising ones were roads I couldn't go down certain roads um his hometown I don't I can't do it um I mean, his, like where he, he, so he's buried in his hometown and I don't find comfort in going and visiting his grave. Mm -hmm. That's a trigger, but I mean, I avoid it. I go out there a couple times a year to take him flowers for Father's Day and stuff, but triggers that I least expected to be a trigger is smells. Mm. 
So I can be out in public and smell his cologne, and boom, that's an instant trigger. Um, Roads, cologne, songs. I think songs can be one for everybody, but certain songs like that I knew were like, you know, his his jam. Right. You know, those songs come on the radio. And now I'm at a point where that trigger isn't as big of a deal. But what I have started to, well, it's, it's, you know, it's been happening since he passed, but I feel like he communicates a little bit through the radio. Mm. Like if I'm thinking things, sometimes the appropriate response will come through the radio. I love that. Like Oscar's sending you a message. You know, I like it too, but I feel like he's very honest with me and sometimes <laughs> it's too much for me and I'm like, dang it, Oscar. Dang it, Oscar. Like, don't do that. Now's not, now's not a good time. But he will, you know, I feel like, you know, if something's going on, he'll, he'll find a way to let me know that he's like still there. I don't know how we got on that from triggers. No, I think that's, that's, that's beautiful. I think that absolutely makes sense. Um, because triggers really are about the ways in which they become immediately present to you or their absence becomes immediately present to you. Yeah. And so I think that's a really natural way in which part of our journey as we navigate this grief, you know, the after part of our life, as I like to call it, you know, there's the before and the after, is how are we incorporating them and their love into are now, you know, into this after part of our life. And sometimes it's in ways where they send us a song that we didn't know, didn't necessarily want to hear or send us an answer. They show up in our dreams sometimes. They show up in the triggers. I think those are the ways in which we're trying to make sense and meaning of how they continue in our story. Yes. Yeah. I will say one thing about the triggers that I have learned that I feel like it's important to share for people that may be going through grief is... Those triggers cannot always be avoided. Yes. And you have to, I've learned that you kind of have to face them dead on. Like, for instance, like the road 620. I avoided that road, like the Black Plague. Mm. I went down that road one time because it was the day. I was like, hey, I can't avoid this road forever. Right, I got to face it. Exactly. Like the mall's down that road. You really want to take the toll road and all these crazy roads to get to the mall now, Heather? Yeah. Get it together. (laughs) So I go down 620, and I had a full-blown, like, panic attack. Like, I remember calling my mom, and I'm hyperventilating. But after that day, I can go down that road now. It's still kind of shaky. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I can get down it in one piece. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big deal for me. That's huge. I mean, I think those are the kind of small and huge stories I want people to hear because I, I think, first of all, it speaks to sort of all of the untold work that we have to do for grief that nobody really sees on the outside. They don't see that, like, it might have taken you everything you had in you to drive down a road. But nobody would have known that when they asked you once you got down the road, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> right? They wouldn't have known. And you don't necessarily want to share the story that, yes, like everybody else, I woke up today and I showered and I got behind the wheel, but it took every ounce of courage and, you know, strength I had to drive down this road. So I think it's so beautiful for you to share sort of like that is all the untold work that we have to do. Um, And I think acknowledging that the triggers are going to come and that we're going to cry in places that we don't want to cry and we're going to be rageful in places that we don't want to rage and we're going to have panic attacks at times that are wholly inconvenient. Yes, or we're going to stay up all night with nightmares or dreams that are going to make us, you know, dazed and confused the next day. And that is our work. And there's no shame in that. And there should be no blame in that. Right. And how do we like acknowledge that, that that's part of the work? I think of this grief in a way as kind of the work that we're doing to sort of reassemble our lives, reassemble the script of our story in this new way. Tell me a little bit about what you've learned about creating a new life for yourself without a partner and what that particular experience of loss of losing a, a husband, a partner has, has meant, what you've learned about that. I feel like it has taught me to be independent. Like, I feel like I'm at a point right now where 
you know, it's hard to, like, think about dating and being with someone. And, I mean, I've tried it, but it's just I'm not ready for it. I feel like I'm seeking Oscar. Like, I have a void, you know, a hole, and I'm trying to fill it with Oscar, and he's not here anymore. That's the that's the flat out truth. Like physically right. he's not here. Yeah. And for me, I've always described it as the kids toys where it's like a little box. And at the top there's like a star, a triangle. Well, I have a triangle and I'm like trying to shove every other shape, shape. into that. And it's just not happening. Yeah. So I've learned to be patient with myself because you can't speed up grief. No, dang it. If if only we could, but alas, we cannot. Yes. There's so many times where I get so frustrated because grief is like... Meandering and slow. It is. And it's not... It's not something that goes in order. You like bounce all over the place. And this might sound a little weird, but I I Googled grief. I'm like, okay, this is a thing. Let me learn a little bit (laughs) about it. So I'm reading it. And I'm like, okay, well, this happens. You know, first there's, you know, shock, then acceptance. Yeah. and Oh, the, as know. if it's just this. I mean, yes. bless Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who came up with the five <laughs> stages of grief. She did the best she could at the time. Yes. I think it's such a fallacy. Yeah. I mean, one thing I learned is you don't go in order sometimes. Yeah. And I remember having a conversation with my mom. And I'm like, mom, this needs to just hurry up. Like, I need to, like, get my life back on track. And she's yeah. like, Heather, <laughs> you cannot speed it up. Um, I, I'm a very much black and white type of person. For me, it's either it's black or it's white. Like there's no gray area. Yeah. I've learned that about myself as well too. Yeah. Like I just, you, you, I mean, I think many people crave that kind of certainty yes. that you're talking about. And I think if you thought of one of the many, I've thought long and hard about the many qualities of grief. And one of the things I would say is it is gray as can be. Oh, oh, for sure. It's all shades of gray. It's, I mean, it's yeah. not just like Heather gray. Yeah. It's not light gray. I mean, it's all the 50 shades, shades of gray. gray. Like it's, it's all, it's all of it. Absolutely. And it drives me crazy Yeah. because I am very much so like, it's either yes or it's no, there's no maybe. Yeah. It's either black or it's white, there's no gray. And that is what grief is, is like this center little gray piece, yeah. this maybe box. Is this- there any part of you that's come to, and the answer might be no, but is there any part of you that has come to sort of see the ways in which living in the gray in this part of your life has helped you show up? more patiently in other parts of your life? Because I do think it requires patience to live in the gray. Yes, it does. Um, I feel like it's a work in progress. Yeah. Because oh, it drives me crazy. Yeah. It drives me insane. Yeah, yeah. But I've definitely, I've learned a lot from it. Yeah. I've, I feel like, you know, I'm only 27 years old, but I feel like when I talk to people, people get to know who I am. They think I'm in like my late 30s. Always. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it's it's matured me. Yeah, there's a kind of wisdom, I think, not just the sort of cliche perspective that people talk about when you lose somebody, you understand what matters and what doesn't matter, which even though it's cliche, I do think grief has a way of, of giving you that perspective. But to your point, I think there's a kind of wisdom that has to come from navigating all that gray. Yeah. I mean, not to like literally put gray hair gray in your hair, as it were. But like, I think navigating all that gray has matures you in a way because you've had to face things that most people in their 20s never. No, no. I I, I mean, I feel like I don't know anybody that's in, you know, in their 20s that have gone through any of that. But I feel like going through everything has also, you know, it's, it's matured me. It's taught me to, you know, not everything is yes and no. Not everything is black and white. There is a gray area. There is a maybe area. Ambiguity and the unknown is so hard for so very many of us. It's especially excruciating when you are watching someone you love go through an illness or suffering that is beyond your control. Heather not only had to do that as she watched her husband Oscar pass when she was just 23 years old, she turned then around to having to raise and care for her medically fragile daughter. But it's also taught me 
like a quality of life. I've learned to like live in the now. And I preach that to my friends, my family, like live in the now, like be present now. Yeah. Like I've just, I've really have learned that. And I feel like not only did Oscar teach me that with him, you know, losing his battle to cancer so soon, but also my daughter, like, you know, when she was so young, Lisa, there were times where I was like, is she going to make it till she's a year old? Oh my God. So I think as you're fresh in your grief of losing Oscar. Yes. So I feel like in the midst of, you know, Oscar and his daughter, Aubrey, like it's taught me like live in the now, like live for live, live every day. Like it's your last day. And I feel like that's really stupid when people say that. Cause I'm like, okay. Yeah. Okay. But I also have to like pay the bills and do chores. Yes. And I'm like, well, we can't all live like that or else we'd all be living under a bridge. Right. Right. But, and it's maybe the quality of how you show up in conversations with people. Yes. Maybe, right? It's not necessarily mm-hmm. that like you quit your job and, you know, go jet setting around to the yeah. islands. It's really about how do I show up in conversation with people? How mm-hmm. do I connect with people? How do I let go of the thing that irritated me to focus on the thing that's bringing me joy? Yeah. Those are the kind of ways in which you're navigating. Yeah. 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 It's all it's all a big work in progress, but I feel like I'm I'm getting through it well. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's like, you know, I'm not, I mean, I don't think anybody knows 100% what they're doing when it Heather, comes to Heather, you're not perfect? Yeah. Ugh, you just burst my <laughs> bubble. Come on now. One of the weirdest, most bizarre, hardest things I think I had to do in the first few years of my grief is make the decision to date again. It is such an odd thing. There are so many messages going on inside of your head and from other people. And I really appreciate the way Heather was honest and vulnerable about the mistakes and even the missteps she might have made when she decided to date again. And to be honest, I could so relate. When you found yourself dating somebody and feeling connections, I don't know if you ever felt like you felt love again, but certainly feeling like, I really like this person, feeling connections. Two questions to that. Were there internal struggles? Like, am I betraying Oscar? How can I feel this way? So to maybe talk a little bit about that as that resonated for you or not. And also maybe explore how it made other people react? So were other people in your life saying like, oh my gosh, thank God she's over Oscar and she's moving on kind of attitude? Or were they also, some of them saying like, wait a minute, why are you hurrying up and moving on? Just tell me whatever whatever of that resonates for you. So I think when I tried to date after Oscar, um, it was very soon. It was yeah. very, I mean, within a few months, I reached out to a, college, a high school friend of mine, and we were really good friends, and we decided, you know, to take things to another level, and I mean, bless his heart, I think he tried to be there for me as much as he could, and well, first off, I don't think we should have taken things to another level. I think yeah. we were really good as friends, Yeah. but it took me a really long time to realize what I was doing. Yeah. I was trying to make him Oscar. Yeah. And I tried really hard, even without thinking about it. Like, of it course was like not. That second, wasn't your intention. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, it was like a second nature. Like, it was something that I was doing and not realizing it. And I did. I absolutely 100% feel like I, you know, betrayed Oscar. Mm. You know, going through it, there were times where I would have battles with myself. And I'm like, I can't believe you're doing this to him. Because I wore my wedding ring forever. Yeah. I even wore it when I was with this guy that I was dating. And I knew that he had a problem with it, but I knew that he just kind of let me do my thing. Yeah. Because yeah. he knew that I was going through some things. Um, but we, you know, we just, we didn't work out. And I think it's because I realized, you know, like... Yeah. I'm not, I'm not ready. And I thought I was, you know, I think everybody thinks they are until they're in the position and they're yeah. like, nope. <laughs> Oopsie. Yeah. Not Guess ready. Not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, we tried for, I think like two, two years on and off, yeah. but it just, yeah. I wasn't ready. 
And I think it goes back to, you know, the little children's toy that I talked about, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oscar's, you know, a triangle, and I'm trying to shove every little... Other shape? Yeah, the other shape into that, and it's it's just not going to work. Right. And right. it took me a really long time to, like, really figure that out and understand it and digest it. Yeah. And then, um, you know, my, my family, they're not always vocal with what's how they feel I feel like they tell each other and then someone kind of spits it out randomly yeah (laughs) and then I'm like so that's how you guys really feel but you know my family was definitely like it's too soon and I mean it it was yeah for sure it was yeah you know I think and we're all just doing the best that we can navigating a completely insane situation yes with some attempt at normalcy yeah Yeah. so you know my family you know they thought it was too soon and of course, I'm very hard-headed, you know. I'm not going to listen to anybody, you know. I just kind of, <laughs> if I think it's I right, got I'm going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then I I was, honestly, I was worried about, like, what other people would think, mm. which I thought was really weird because I'm not the type of person that needs that acceptance from other people. Like, I can march to a beat of my own drum and be yeah. fine with it. Yeah. But I was really worried about what other people would think. I was concerned with, well, you know, what are people going to say? What, so I kind of, like, kept him a secret. Yeah. And I knew it made him feel bad. I mean, who would feel good being a secret? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, we finally started to, like, show people that we Be were, more public. Yeah, be more public. And I just wasn't ready for it. Yeah, yeah. Like, and... I feel like if I could talk to him now, because we're, you know, we don't talk, we're we're not on yeah. speaking terms. Like I owe him a huge apology. I feel like because I felt like he went off of my word. You know, right. you say you're ready. Okay, we're gonna do it. And then you know he's in this huge. He's this, putting himself out yeah, there. Yeah. He's in this huge tornado with me, and I don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. Yeah. And yeah. so as he's whirling around in this tornado, he's like, oh, oh man. man, I did not see this coming. Yeah. yeah. But the, and the honest truth is neither did you. I mean, again, this goes back to why we have to have patience with people's intention. Your intention was good. You know, you said something that really resonated for me and I imagine some for some of our listeners about the ways in which when you're going through grief and loss, especially when it comes to dating, but I can think of other things, the way you're parenting, whether or not you do or don't go back to work right away, whether you do or don't stay in the same apartment or, you know, all the choices you have to make is that you become, it feels anyways, like you're under a magnifying glass and that the world is looking at every word you say or don't say, every action you do or don't do. And for those of us who maybe always thought of ourselves as being like, as you said, I don't really let other people's judgment, you know, dictate how I mm-hmm. operate in the world. I can definitely relate to that way of which each decision I made, not each, but many of the decisions I was making, it wasn't just surviving and trying to make the decision for me or for my daughter. It was what are my parents going to think? What is his family going to think? What is my boss going to think? What are my friends going to think? Can you tell me a little bit about how you've navigated that sort of conflict in your mind about other people thinking, making judgments and sticking to what you knew to be the best you could do in a situation? I feel like where I'm at now is I'm finally at a point where I don't care. I I don't care. I'm going to do what's best for me and what's best for Aubrey and what's best for us. But it took me some time to get there. It took me a really long time to get there. I mean, recently. But, I mean, man, I I was so concerned with what people would think. What were some of the decisions that you were having to make or the actions you were having to take that you either directly heard from people or just wondered in your mind, how are people going to make sense of this choice. Dating obviously is, is a yeah. big one. For dating, sure. dating was a big one. Um, I feel like just choosing my daughter's school, that yeah. was another one. Interesting. You know, Which by the way is a choice you have to make alone now. Yeah, it is a choice that I have to make alone, but my daughter, she's deaf. And so, you know, making a choice as to, okay, are we going to send her to Texas school for the deaf? 
Or are we going to send her to another, you know, really awesome school in the Austin area that, you know, supports deaf kids as well? Yeah. That was a choice. Um, and you felt like there was sort of an external yes. pressure from people yes. about I feel like how are you making that decision? And would Oscar have made that yes. same decision? Yes. Um, that was tough because, I'm, you know, I'm like, well, what do I do? Like, I'm obviously a hearing person. That's it, a whole other journey in itself, having a deaf child, being in the I don't know if you've ever, if you have any deaf friends or anything. It's a whole community. Yeah. I mean, they're awesome, but it's a whole community. That so this you, is a whole new level of learning yes. you're having to take on as a parent, yes. as a widow. Yes. All of that. Yeah. I feel like one of the big decisions that I had to go through after Oscar was cochlear implants. Yeah. Do I implant my child or do I not implant her? And I went back and forth, back and forth. And again, this is probably one of those trigger moments where you're thinking, come on, Oscar, I wish you were here yes. to help me make this decision. Yes. I, I experienced some anger with that as well because that's a, that's, that's a pretty big surgery. Yeah. And so I'm going through, you know, trying to make the right decision for her because I'm like, so let, just to give some background yeah. on that, her, you know, her doctor did tell me like, it'd be best to implant her, but we don't know how much input she's going to get or if they're going to work. So there's that aspect to it. And you're like, okay, so That's is she really a guinea pig? Yeah. yeah. And so I'm th- all I could think to myself was if Oscar was here, we could sit here and weigh pros and cons together. Should we do this? Should we not right. do this? Right. But unfortunately, he's not here. And I was, I was very angry yeah. because it's like, okay, do I go forward with it? And you know, God forbid they don't work and she's gone through all this surgery, you know, just recovery. Yes. Like the whole process. And then she's angry with me when she's an adult and can, you know, communicate that effectively to me. Like, mom, why would you make me do this? They don't work. Right. Or it's like, okay, well let's, let's weigh our other option, just not doing it at all. And then, you know, here she is 16, 17 years old and she's like, why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? And then, you know, we get her implanted and, you know, then she's having to make up for lost time with therapies. And it's just decisions like that where you're like, you, you need to consult with another parent. You need your partner. Yes. Yeah. There's so many, you know, you really touch on, there's so many places where that shows up. And I, I think of those as almost trigger moments too, you oh, know, yeah. like when you're, from the simple, I mean, that is a very complex and very heavy and weighted decision and moment that you were talking about, about your daughter and her cochlear implants. Then there's also the sort of trivial, you know, moment or more trivial moments of, you know, which health insurance plan or can we get on health insurance or should I get the new car, or just keep paying, you know, getting this one repaired or. Oh, that, that, so that's, that's a, a big one. That's a big one too. Yeah. Just vehicle wise. Yeah. So after I lost Oscar, I had his vehicle and my vehicle. Well, my I had like a little bitty Hyundai Elantra, and Aubrey's car seat barely fit in there. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I need to get rid of it. Well, he helped me get that car. He co-signed for me. Mm. And that was really hard. That was really hard for me because I was like, I don't want to let go of that car. Like, he helped me get that car. Because it's a symbol of him and his connection to you. Yes. And I had to, you know, tell myself, Heather... Like, it's just a car. Yeah. But his his truck, I still have it, and I can't I can't get rid of it. Yeah. I, I just, I cannot get rid of it. Like, my brother, he called me and asked me, he's like, I, I need a truck. So it would have been the perfect truck for my brother. And I'm yeah. like, hey, I love you. You're my brother. Yeah. But I can't. I just can't get rid of this. Like, yeah. it, it's still yeah. so much a part of me. I can't. And, oh. I mean, I don't drive it hardly ever, but yeah. I can't get rid of it. That's so important about how it's really up to the griever to decide what are the symbols, you know, the physical symbols, the places, the spaces that you're willing to sort of hold on to and what you're willing to let go of. And it doesn't make rash, it doesn't have to make rational sense to anybody else in our lives. And that's really for you to navigate and for other people to maybe sometimes gently ask us, hey, is it time or not? But that's really for each person to individually decide for themselves because as you said, that was a that was a piece of the ways in which you and Oscar were connected was mm-hmm. was through that symbol. I wish we could be having this conversation for three more hours. It's been really important. All the ways you've really shown up and been authentic and raw 
and direct about your experience. I feel particularly privileged to have had the opportunity to know Oscar and visit with him on several occasions and feel really blessed um, that I got to meet you as a result and Aubrey. And I honestly wish we wouldn't know each other because that means you wouldn't have needed a care box at that time. Um, but since that is what happened, I'm so grateful to be in your life. And I'm really grateful to you for spending this hour with me on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch, talking about the real deal um, and talking about what your experience has been. And I hope that our listeners have learned something, saw something of themselves in this conversation or learned something that they should or shouldn't say, as in, don't ask, how are you doing? Any, don't ask the loaded question. <laughs> don't ask the loaded question. Is that your sort of parting advice for our conversation today? Yes, don't ask that question. Don't ask it. It's no. just, you're not ready for it. Nobody's ready to, for that answer. Awesome. So don't ask that question. Thank you so much for joining me today. So you heard it. Heather gave us a directive. Don't ask the dreaded, how are you doing question. I know it's hard to know what to say, but as I always say, better to show up, shut up, and just listen. This has been another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch. If you enjoyed the episode, please go online and give us a rating and a review, and be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch.